तदेकं स्मरामस्तदेकं भजामः तदेकं जगत्साक्षिरूपं नमामः सदेकं निधानं निरालंबमीशं भवाम्बोधिपोतं शरण्यं व्रजामः On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship. To that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning after a long time. The title of today's talk is Be Always Expecting Me. Be Always Expecting Me. Many of you perhaps recognize this as a quote from Swami Brahmananda, the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna, pictured here. And uh, the story is related in The Eternal Companion, the biography of Swami Brahmananda, written by Swami Prabhavananda. And uh, I'll read out the story as it's told in that uh, book. One morning, Swami Jnaneshwarananda hurried out of his room, leaving behind an unmade bed and general confusion. He met Maharaj, that is Swami Brahmananda, on the Maidan, a large open field near his room. After paying his respects, he was startled to hear Maharaj say, Take me to your room. I wish to see the place where you sleep. Swami Jnaneshwarananda, feeling ashamed, replied, Maharaj, can you, can you not come a little later? I was not expecting you, and the room is not fit to receive you. Maharaj said, My boy... You must always be expecting me. It's a short story, but very significant. I'd like to see if we can imagine the scene a little more deeply. We have a young monk. I think he was still a novice before he had had his uh, sannyasa. He would have been in white robes. And like many of us, in the morning he was in a hurry. Maybe he overslept and had to make it to the morning prayer in the temple or uh, for whatever reason he didn't bother to straighten up his bed. He left uh, things in a, in a, as a mess. Now in those days, the, especially even today, but in those days, the monks had almost no personal possessions. So what does it mean that the room was in disarray? I bet probably the mosquito curtain was still hanging. Usually, usually we take down the mosquito curtain, fold it up and, and stash it under the bed and straighten out the bed covering and uh, wash our laundry. When we, when we take our bath, we'll dip our cloth into the bucket and hang it out to dry, all these details. So he must have left some uh, dirty laundry on the floor and his mosquito curtain hanging and maybe he hadn't swept in a few days. Anyhow, the room was not fit to receive someone else. 
So he goes out. Uh, probably his bath towel was hanging on the on the door or something like that. So he goes out into the field, and there he meets Swami Brahmananda. It's difficult to imagine the gulf, in some sense, that existed between them. Swami, on the one hand, we had this young novice who had joined the monastery a few years before, and on the other, we had the disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Brahmananda, who was a spiritual giant. He wasn't just a saint, he was a saint maker. He was living continually in an exalted state of very high spirituality. And the young novices would look on him with utmost reverence, mixed even with a little fear, because they knew that Swami Brahmananda could know what they are thinking. He would know their inmost thoughts. So there was some fear there, not in his presence, most likely, because he would remove that fear in his presence by his love, but still this utmost reverence, someone to be revered as spiritual teacher and as uh, spiritual giant. So he, when he met Swami Brahmananda, he would have saluted him. And that means he would, the, the story says, after paying his respects, he would have bowed down at his feet, touching his head to the ground. Then he would have touched Maharaja's feet and taken the dust of his feet on his head. That's the tradition in our order. So he would have done all that and felt most likely that it was good fortune to have met Maharaj by chance like that on the field to get his blessing, to salute him and get his blessing. And what does Maharaj say? He says, take me to your room. I want to see where you sleep. <laughs> so the poor man is uh, so much startled. It's an utterly unexpected request. I stayed for two years at Bilarmat, and for us it would be unthinkable that a senior monk would ask, ask to see our room, what to speak of the president, even a senior monk. Maybe once or twice we invited some of our teachers, our teacher monks, to visit our rooms, but the president, unthinkable. So the poor man is horrified. So he asks him, what else can he say? Maharaj, couldn't you come a little later? <laughs> I wasn't expecting you. That would give him chance, a chance to straighten up the room, get everything ready so that uh, he can come. And Maharaj gives him the very uh, direct answer. My boy, you must always be expecting me. So the moral of the story, of course, is always make your bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the powerful teaching here is always be expecting the divine who is me in this case? me is the divine we must always be expecting the divine it also shows the Guru's grace this story shows the Guru's grace because uh, I imagine that Swami Brahmananda knew perfectly well the condition of Swami Ganeshwarananda's room he knew it that's why he asked. He wouldn't have asked if the room had been all nice and clean and tip-top. He doesn't care what the, to, to see the room. It was specifically to teach him this lesson. And fortunately, we are all getting this lesson. 
to be always expecting the Lord, always expecting the Divine. It's significant, I think, that Swami Brahmananda asked specifically to see the place where you sleep. The place where we sleep is our most intimate personal space. It's where we commit our body, as it were, to the darkness and let go of the senses and go within, forgetting all about the external world. So it's a place where we, it's a trusted place where we uh, are able to uh, go within and have dreams and deep sleep. The condition of that space will reflect the condition of our minds. If someone's room is tidy and clean, we can understand that, at least to a certain extent, their minds are also tidy, clean, well-organized. If a room is in a disheveled state, if it's a mess, if it's a disaster area, then we can bet that our mind, that that person's mind will also be disorganized, disheveled, as it were. Also, the place where we sleep will affect us. If we say we set up our bed in a crowded train station, how will our, what kind of sleep will we get? Or if we lie down under a tree in a meadow, a big difference. So both sides are there. On the one hand, the state of our room reflects the state of our mind. And on the other hand, the state of our room affects the state of our mind. So it's very important because the, the uh, condition of the mind is most uh, important for spiritual seekers. We have to uh, take good care of our minds. Sri Ramakrishna himself was very particular about his room. Everything was in its place and it was kept meticulously clean. He himself would sweep his room if there was no one else to do it. He himself would sweep it and keep it clean and would guide others also about exactly how to keep certain things. And uh, such a room shines with sattva, the shines with a kind of peacefulness, luminosity, with tranquility. So in the case of our Swami Jnaneshwarananda, his room left in disarray suggests that he, his mind also was in disarray. So Swami Brahmananda is calling attention to that fact. Now in Swami Jnaneshwarananda's defense, I, I'd like to say that he himself became a great soul. He uh, founded. The, he came to this country and founded the Vedanta Society in Chicago, and was highly respected as a man of illumination. So uh, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> and uh, we're also grateful to him for sharing this story, which Swami Prabhavananda then uh, really. Uh, publicized to the world at large. So what really inspires me about this incident is this idea that we must be expecting the Lord, expecting the Divine. One of our Swamis, uh, in an editorial in the Prabuddha Bharata on spiritual aspiration from 1979, he discusses uh, one of Paul's letters in the Bible 
the Christian Bible, the f- most famous one about love, written to devotees in Corinth, the Corinthians. And there's one line in this letter, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. According to the article, these three represent three stages in the spiritual life of a seeker. From the devotional standpoint, faith, hope, and love, three stages in spiritual life. The beginner in spiritual life has some faith. Otherwise, why would we take up spiritual life? We have some faith as beginners. We have some conviction in the reality of the Spirit, some conviction that there is such a thing called God-realization and that we can realize it. The possibility of spiritual experience, we acknowledge that. But the beginning, the beginning seeker also has doubts. Is it really true? Or is it just my imagination? On the one hand, yes, God must be there. The divine reality must be there. Or maybe it's all just imagination. Maybe there's nothing. Such a seeker has not yet had a direct experience of the divine. So at this stage, we may believe theoretically that God-realization is possible, but we are not sure it's possible for ourselves. So we're not yet expecting the Lord. We're not yet expecting. The second stage of spiritual life in this particular formulation is characterized by hope. When the seeker first gains some glimpse of high reality, first gets a, a, a spiritual experience, some insight into his or her own higher nature, spiritual nature, then real hope arises, hope that illumination is possible. This is more than faith. This is a positive expectation that spiritual realization, illumination, enlightenment is possible for me. The article calls it a deep spiritual certitude. God-realization is not just for the saints, the mystics, the gurus, or the swamis. It's for me also. So it is at this stage that we begin to expect the Lord. We begin to expect that we will be getting God-realization. The third stage in this uh, scheme is characterized by love. In this stage, one is established in some spiritual realization and one perceives the divine and thus one's whole heart pours forth in love for the divine. One begins to feel at all times the presence of God and not only does one expect the Lord, one also receives the Lord at this stage. So I'd like to discuss a little more the second stage, this idea of expecting the Lord. It's a wonderful and essential attitude, I think, in spiritual life, and I also think that we often neglect to protect it. We, we fail to protect it, to keep it strong. Swami Brahmananda said, you must always be expecting me, always. That means... We should be expecting to experience the divine at all times. When we sit down for meditation, we should expect to to 
experience God directly. We should expect to see the Lord when we offer flowers at the altar. We are to expect to meet the Lord in each and every person that we meet. I think oftentimes we lose this expectation, this hope. Spiritual realization becomes something for the saints. For myself, I'll have to wait till after death to see God. But you know Swami Aseshananda, what he used to say, no post-mortem emancipation in Vedanta. (laughs) In this life itself, not after death, in this life itself we are to realize. It is possible, we must expect it. And the more we expect it, the sooner it will come. Because expectation is a very powerful force. It, the force of our expectation will determine, to a great extent, what happens. Now this expectation, this attitude of expecting, we can uh, see is of two kinds. Immature and mature. When we first start spiritual life and take up meditation, we have a certain enthusiasm and we may get the feeling, oftentimes many people get the feeling, that God-realization is just around the corner. We'll be illumined souls before long. I remember often how Swami Tadatmananda used to joke. Swami Tadatmananda was a monk in Trabuco, the painter, who painted all the paintings in our living room. And... Uh, he used to joke that when he first got interested in Vedanta and started meditating, he felt that uh, Nirvakalpa Samadhi was just around the corner. In a year or two, he would have God-realization. And then he would get on with his life and do all the things, other things he wanted to do, like maybe become a famous painter and all that. Uh, of, of course, he did become a famous painter finally, but uh, gradually he realized, as all of us realize who stick with it, that it's not so easy It's uh, not a matter of a few days. Uh, This is the immature expectation. The immature expectation. We find that pretty soon that the path is long and arduous. Meditation is a constant battle with the mind. And sometimes we feel like we're going backwards instead of forwards. The danger is that that initial zeal, it wanes. That initial feeling, I can see God, is replaced by, I might see God one day, or maybe after my death, or maybe in my next lifetime. My next lifetime will be better, so maybe in my next lifetime I'll be able to see God. We become like a wet noodle. We lose that zeal. So I feel that we need to preserve that initial feeling of expectation, that zeal, but temper it with the understanding that the path is lifelong, and ripen it, ripen it. Progress is measured not in days, but over the course of months and years. And as we mature in spiritual life, that expectation also matures and becomes something real. We begin to feel that, yes, really spiritual realization is possible for me. I expect it. then we get that hope that Paul speaks of, which is a positive expectation. And also, we get the patience to wait for that moment. 
It's a paradox in spiritual life. On the one hand, we need to strive intensely. And on the other hand, we need great patience. Swami Vivekananda says, Purity, patience, and perseverance overcome all obstacles. Purity, patience, and perseverance. These are the triple P's. The triple P's. Purity, patience, and perseverance. The incident we are thinking about today covers all three. Purity. Our bed must be made. Our room must be clean. That means our minds must be pure. A pure mind is a sattvic mind. It's not filled with anger, strong desires, jealousy, all those things. But it's tranquil, content. To be always expecting a visitor means to be always vigilant. Our visitor may come at any time. So we must persevere day in and day out, be always ready to receive the divine. Yet, since we don't know when the visitor will actually come, we have to be very patient. We know he's coming, but when, that we don't know. So we have to be patient and ready. Jesus, uh, in the Bible, tells a very nice parable of bridesmaids who are waiting for the groom. I'll read the, the story. He says, Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. <coughs> went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It seems that a Jewish, in a Jewish wedding of those days, the bridegroom would come in the night to take away the bride and, the, and of course, the bridesmaids who would come along. So they would be waiting, not knowing when the groom would come. This was the tradition. I don't know the details, but he would come in the night and snatch away the bride. <laughs> Each culture has its own unusual wedding tradition. So this was the tradition in those days. So these uh, bridesmaids would be waiting, not knowing when the groom is going to come. It's a beautiful parable. The seekers of God are waiting for the Lord, expecting the Lord, being ready for that moment, being ready to receive him, but not knowing when he's coming. So the wise ones, they had oil for their lamps because they knew we don't know when he's coming. If he comes late, we'd better have extra oil. 
But those who were not prepared, they couldn't finally meet the bridegroom. They had gone out to buy oil and they missed the moment. They missed that auspicious moment. So what does it mean to have our flask of oil ready? It means if we are really expecting the bridegroom, we shall know we need an extra flask of oil. We shall be prepared. We shall uh, have to do some spiritual practice. Practice meditation. Our body and mind must be prepared for spiritual experience. The nerves need to be purified and strengthened through the practice of meditation and be ready. Sri Ramakrishna describes in his charming way how spiritual, how the devotee experience, sees God. How does the devotee see God? M, the recorder of the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna had asked him, uh, when one sees God, does one see him with these eyes? Sri Ramakrishna replied, God cannot be seen with these physical eyes. In the course of spiritual discipline, one gets a love body endowed with love eyes, love ears, and so on. One sees God with those love eyes. One hears the voice of God with those love ears. With this love body, the soul communes with God. So to develop this love body, steady practice is needed. Regularity is essential at the same time, in the same place, day after day, day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, we have to practice. It's a training of the mind. And the mind gradually gets used to the discipline. I often tell the story that Sri relate the story that Sri Ramakrishna uses of the mind as a dog. The mind is like a spoiled dog. A man used to let his dog sit in his lap and he would feed him from the table. Uh, and uh, one day his friend seeing that said, oh, that's disgusting. That's entirely unhygienic. What are you doing? Letting your dog sit on your lap at the table? You shouldn't do that. So the friend uh, so convinced him so he wouldn't let the dog sit in his lap anymore. But any of you who have ever had a dog know it's not so easy just to say, okay, no more. That dog will continue to beg and jump up and whine and cry and it'll take a, a number of good slaps and scoldings before the dog finally realizes that, that the rules have changed and it's no longer permitted. So the mind is like that. It's gotten used to certain ways of doing things and to change those ways takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of slaps. Holy Mother Sri Sarada Devi says, it is essential to maintain a regular time for meditation and japa. For no one can say when the auspicious moment will come. It comes suddenly. One gets no hint of it beforehand. Therefore, no matter how busy one may be, no matter how much trouble is going on, one must keep up one's routine. This is the auspicious moment, the moment when the veils fall away and we suddenly find ourselves in the presence of God. Mother says that uh, we don't get a hint of it beforehand oftentimes. We don't know it's coming, so we have to be ready.
And she was always like that. She was incredibly steady. No matter what trouble is going on, she would always sit for meditation morning and evening. There's an incident in Sister Nivedita's life which I think illustrates this point very nicely. Sister Nivedita was, of course, Swami Vivekananda's Irish disciple who had dedicated herself to his cause and became, uh, followed him to India and wanted to serve him and his cause in India. And at that point, they were traveling together in, with some other people in the Himalayas and uh, Kashmir and other places. And at this, then Swami Vivekananda began to discipline her as a disciple. He was molding her character, and it was a very tough disciplining, very tough. He was remolding her character, breaking some of her very cherished but mistaken uh, notions and ideas. So at a certain point, uh, one of the other devotees who was in the party intervened with Swamiji, feeling that this was really perhaps going a bit too far. And... Swamiji afterwards blessed Sister Nivedita, and she describes this incident. She writes, this is from The Master As I Saw Him, Sister Nivedita's wonderful biography of Swami Vivekananda. Under the influence of the Swami Swarupananda, I began seriously the attempt at meditation. And if it had not been for this help of his, one of the greatest hours of my life would have passed me by. My relation to our master at this time can only be described as one of clash and conflict. I can see now how much there was to learn and how short was the time for learning to be. But I had been little prepared for that constant rebuke and attack upon all my most cherished prepossessions, which was now my lot. And then came a time when one of the older ladies of our party, thinking perhaps that such intensity of pain inflicted might easily go too far, interceded kindly and gravely with the Swami. He listened silently and went away. At evening, however, he returned, and finding us together in the veranda, he turned to her and said, with the simplicity of a child, You were right. There must be a change. I am going away into the forests to be alone, and when I come back, I shall bring peace. Then he turned and saw that above us the moon was new, and a sudden exultation came into his voice as he said, See, the Mohammedans think much of the new moon. Let us also with the new moon begin a new life. As the words ended, he lifted his hands and blessed with silent depths of blessing, his most rebellious disciple, by this time kneeling before him. It was assuredly a moment of wonderful sweetness of reconciliation. But such a moment may heal a wound. It cannot restore an illusion that has been broken into fragments. And I have told its story only that I may touch upon its sequel. Long, long ago, Sri Ramakrishna had told his disciples that the day would come when his beloved Noren would manifest his own great gift of bestowing knowledge with a touch. That evening at Almora, I proved the truth of his prophecy, for alone in meditation 
I found myself gazing deep into an infinite good, to the recognition of which no egoistic reasoning had led me. I learnt, too, on the physical plane, the simple, everyday reality of the experience related in the Hindu books on religious psychology. And I understood, for the first time, that the greatest teachers may destroy in us a personal relation only in order to bestow the impersonal vision in its place. It's an important passage. It relates many things. I'd like to call attention to one thing in particular. Towards the beginning, she says, that had it not been for the influence of Swami Swarupananda in earnestly practicing meditation, she says, one of the greatest hours of my life would have passed me by. Had she not begun the serious practice of meditation after Swamiji had blessed her, she wouldn't have sat for meditation. She wouldn't have had that experience. The auspicious moment had come for her. She had received the benediction of one who could grant knowledge with a touch. And she realized that it was her preparation through the practice of meditation that allowed her to receive it. And that one of the greatest hours of her life would have passed her by had she not been prepared to receive it. She hints about what this experience was. It's difficult to say exactly, but she hints here that uh, she learned the simple everyday reality of the experience related in Hindu books on religious psychology. I think she's referring to Raja Yoga, and she had the experience of Samadhi. That's what I feel. So we need to prepare ourselves. We need to be strict with our routine. Even the Holy Mother experienced the tricks that one's mind can play. She said, what, one should practice japa and meditation at regular times, giving up idleness. While living at Dakshineshwar, I used to get up at three o'clock in the morning and practice japa and meditation. One day I felt a little indisposed and left the bed rather late. The next day I woke up still late through laziness. Gradually, I found that I did not feel inclined to get up early at all. Then I said to myself, Ah, at last I have fallen victim to laziness. Thereupon, I began to force myself to get up early. Gradually, I got back my former habit. In such matters, one should keep up the practice with unyielding resolution. Perhaps almost all of us know the temptation of that. Snooze button. <laughs> How many times will we hit the snooze button? Our meditation cushion is waiting for us. Are we go <laughs> and Mother also assures us, why can't one meditate if one has a pure mind? Why should one not be able to see God? When a pure soul performs japa, he feels as if the holy name bubbles up spontaneously from within himself. He does not need to make an effort to repeat the name. There's a wonderful story illustrating the patience and perseverance required of seekers from the Ramayana, the story of Shabari. Probably many of you know it. Shabari was a woman who lived in the forest at the time of Rama. And she lived in the ashram of her guru, the sage Matanga. Now, 
Matanga was uh, on his deathbed. He was going to leave his body. And he told Shabari that Rama will come. Rama will come to this ashram. He will come through the forest and come to this ashram. Be ready for him. Then he left the body. So, Shabari waited for Rama. Every day she swept the forest paths around the ashrama, clearing the paths of any thorns or pebbles which might hurt uh, the feet of her beloved Lord Rama. And she would pluck fruits and roots and get, make them ready to serve to Rama when he would come and get them ready. So every day she would do this and she had the firm conviction because she had the assurance of her teacher that Rama will come and I must serve him when he comes. So day in and day out she swept the paths and plucked the fruits and waited and the days turned into months and the months turned into years. She became an old woman bent over but still every day she would sweep the paths for Rama who's going to come and finally the auspicious day does come the auspicious moment arrives and Rama comes walking through the forest and visits the ashrama and she falls at his feet in adoration and invites him into her hut and feeds him the roots and fruits that she has collected that morning and receives also from Rama very important teaching on devotion, nine kinds of devotion. So Shabari's long tapasya, her long austerity of being ready for Rama, expecting him every single day, finally bore fruit in Rama's visit. And so she epitomizes this ideal of patience, patiently waiting for the Lord, always expecting him. This is the moment of grace, the auspicious moment, when Rama comes to our hut, when the bridegroom arrives and takes us to the wedding party. It is grace, the sages say, it is only by grace that God is realized, not by our own efforts. No effort can bring it about. Yet, at the same time, they exhort us again and again to struggle. This is the old tussle, the old disagreement which is it? Is it divine grace or is it self-effort? See, Ramakrishna tells some beautiful parables which reconcile these two seemingly conflicting principles. He says, But you see, the mother bird doesn't break the shell until the chick inside the egg is matured. The egg is hatched in the fullness of time. What happens if we break the egg before the chick is matured? The chick dies. Likewise, premature spiritual experience can actually shatter an unprepared mind and leave us worse off than we were before. This is, uh, the, the, there is a danger in some kinds of spiritual practices which try to artificially awaken the kundalini and force a spiritual experience. This is because the mind won't be prepared for it. Sri Ramakrishna continues, It is necessary to practice some spiritual discipline. 
The guru, no doubt, does everything for the disciple. But at the end, he makes the disciple work a little himself. When cutting down a big tree, a man cuts almost through the trunk. Then he stands aside for a moment, and the tree falls down with a crash. So grace is like the tree falling. It falls of its own. We don't have to push it. And the last bit of trunk is broken. But in order for the tree to fall, most of it has to be cut. Or the farmer brings water to his field through a canal from the river. He stands aside when only a little digging remains to be done to connect the field with the water. Then the earth becomes soaked and falls of itself, and the water of the river pours into the canal in torrents. So we can imagine a farmer's dry field and the river at some distance. The farmer wants to get water into his field, so he starts digging a trench. From starts at the field and he starts digging a trench. And he keeps digging and digging until he gets close to the river. And when he gets very close to the river, he, maybe he's got just a foot or two left before he re- reaches the actual water of the river. He stops and he stands aside. He knows that the water of the river will percolate through the soil and the pressure of the water will then break that narrow dam which remains separating the uh, trench from the river and the water will flow in of its own accord and water the whole field. So grace is also like that. We have to dig our trench and then... but. We, we won't be able to dig it all the way because God-realization is not possible through our own efforts. Yet we have to dig the trench and then the last knots of the heart, that last barrier, is washed away by the onflow of divine grace which fills our being with effulgence and divine knowledge. Swami Brahmananda says, I have seen God and you too can see him if you follow me. So have said all the saints and saviors. As Sri Ramakrishna has said, by merely repeating ganja leaves, you cannot become intoxicated. Gather them, grind and dissolve them, drink them and wait for a while. Then alone will you feel the intoxication. In the same way, simply crying out, Lord, Lord, will not do. Practice sadhana, and wait for his grace, and in time you will have his vision. The uh, Sri Ramakrishna often used the example of uh, intoxication of a drug to uh, symbolize the intoxication of spiritual experience. Spiritual intoxication. The wandering monks in India, many of them use ganja, means marijuana. They smoke it or they make a drink out of it. They, and they do, they do just that. They grind it and dissolve it in water and then they drink that. And, uh, so he's referring to that. Just by saying, ganja leaves, ganja leaves, will anything happen? No, you have to pluck the leaves, grind them up, drink it, then you'll feel the intoxication. So similarly, uh, just saying, oh Lord, 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 it's not going to do it, we have to practice systematic spiritual disciplines. So pray and wait, as the saying goes, or as Swami Brahmananda says, practice sadhana and wait. Practice spiritual disciplines and wait. Swami Brahmananda exhorts us 
Have patience, infinite patience, until you reach the reality. In the primary stage, meditation is tiresome. It is like learning the alphabet. Gradually, peace comes. There are boys who, after they have been initiated, complain to me that they are not getting anywhere. I do not listen to them for two or three years. Then, later, they come and tell me, Yes, Maharaj, I am getting somewhere now. Do not be impatient. Struggle intensely for two or three years, and your heart will be flooded with joy. This is an excellent example. We get initiation, and I think all who are gurus probably hear this all the time. Oh, Swami, my mind is so restless, I can't meditate, I can't meditate, nothing's happening, I'm not getting anywhere. Swami Brahmananda wouldn't even listen. He knows that if they actually practice, after some time they will begin to get the results. He went so far as to say, if you practice and don't get any results, you can come and slap my face. Imagine going and slapping Swami Brahmananda's face. But he told, he, told, he told his disciples, you can slap my face if you don't get any results. And they would get results if they practice. Sri Ramakrishna also didn't like that, didn't like a lukewarm attitude in spiritual life. He said, I don't like that song, brother, joyfully cling to God, thus striving, someday you may attain him. I don't care for the line, thus striving, someday you may attain him. He wanted a more fiery attitude. He would sing this, he wanted us to exert force. He would sing this, uh, this song. He, he says, God is your own mother. Is she a stepmother? Is it an artificial relationship? If you cannot force your demand on her, then on whom can you force it? Say to her, Mother, am I thine eight months child? Thy red eyes cannot frighten me. A deed of gift I hold in my heart, attested by thy husband Shiva. I shall sue thee if I must, and with a single point shall win. God is your own mother, and force your demand. And Sri Ramakrishna assures us that the divine response is assured. In this dance of spiritual life, dan a dance with the divine, we might, we might call it, uh, we generally tend to think more about the seeking, about our struggle to find God. Seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. We have to seek, we have to knock, and then the divine responds. It's a call and response. The seeker calls and the divine responds. Sri Ramakrishna says, if the seeker take, if we take one step towards God, God takes ten steps towards us. But again, sometimes it is the divine which calls and the seeker who responds. Sri Ramakrishna says, sometimes God becomes the magnet and the devotee the needle. And sometimes the devotee becomes the magnet and God becomes the needle. There's a passage in the Bible. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. So here, God is 
calling. God is knocking at the door, and we have to open the door and let him in. Here the divine is actively seeking us. Sri Ramakrishna, before his devotees and disciples had come to him, he was at Dakshineshwar, he had practiced his intense spiritual disciplines and had become fully established in God consciousness. And the Divine Mother had showed him that he would have disciples to whom he would bequeath his spiritual wealth, who he would train to be the bearers of his message. She had showed him. But where were they? They weren't coming. He was surrounded by devotees and ordinary world-type people, and he was longing for the pure-hearted young seekers to whom he would give his teachings. So he would say, When the day ended and the evening came, I could no longer control that surge of anxiety by any amount of patience. The thought arose that another day had passed away and none of them had come. When the temples rang with sounds of conches, bells, etc., I got up to the roof of the mansion of the proprietors. Being restless on account of the anguish of my heart, I called out at the top of my voice and with tears in my eyes, Where are you, my children? Do come, one and all. I cannot rest any more without seeing you. And I filled the quarters with loud cries. So great were my anxiety and restlessness that it is doubtful whether a mother could desire so intensely to meet her child, nor had I ever heard of a pair of lovers or friends behaving that way in order to be united with each other. So it is said that this call of Sri Ramakrishna, shouted from the rooftop of the Kuti, the mansion at Dakshineshwar, over a hundred years ago, is still resounding. His call is still resounding. Where are you, my children? Oh, come to me. I am dying to see you. So let us hear that call and be always expecting him. Tomeva mata chapita tomeva Tomeva bandhusha sakha tomeva Tomeva vidya dravidam tomeva Tomeva sarvam mama deva deva Kayena vacha manasendriva Buddhyatmana va prakrites Karomi yad yad sakalam parasmai Narayanayeti samarpayami Om Shanti 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 Thou art my mother, my father art thou. Thou art my friend, my companion art thou. Thou art my knowledge, my wealth art thou. Thou art my all in all, O God of gods. Whatever we do through our body, speech, mind, senses, intellect, soul, or through innate natural tendencies, all that we dedicate as an offering to the Supreme Lord. Om, peace, peace, peace.